welcome to the seven innings podcast we're uh we're right around midway through the season here believe it or not folks as we uh turn the corner and head towards the mayhem on the road to the women's college world series bemo scarborough shro bro jdh smitty and just because we love you guys so much a special visit from Jersey Meg. We're going to talk about the NCAA predetermining sites for the postseason. We got some big previews coming up around the country. Um, of course, our mailbag, which has become a, a fan favorite. Um, and who turned the lights out? We're going to try and answer that question for you all on today's Seven Innings podcast. We begin with what we saw last week. Smitty, you and I saw the Kentucky-Tennessee series and we saw a very impressive Ashley Rogers in the circle for the Lady Vols. Yeah, Bimo, she was incredible. I mean, her demeanor, um, her look, her energy when she would get strikeouts, she was just like fist pumping and just pointing at uh, Allie Shipman. It was incredible to watch her. Her rise ball was outstanding in game one. She had 10 strikeouts, but she came back in game three, had even more strikeouts, 13. And she used her curveball, so she expanded the strike zone. Super impressed with Ashley Rogers and the way she dominated against Kentucky. That that's what I love to see from the pitching uh, pitching coach and and the pitcher and the catcher is change what you're doing um, the next time through, or at least give it a little tweak the second time you see somebody over the weekend. And that's exactly what Rogers did. We will give a shout out to the Kentucky Bats in Game Two. They they hit four home runs. Uh, so that that's still a, a pretty potent offense to deal with. We'll see how it goes for those two teams that are in the middle of the pack in the Southeastern Conference. Um, we, we have Amanda Scarborough with us who had an entertaining um, weekend at Georgia that she wants to tell us all about. Yeah, I would love to tell you about the entertainment because um, game two and game three weren't very entertaining, uh, just kind of being honest it was a blowout by Florida in game two 17 to one and then um they really beat Georgia pretty handedly in game three but in game one uh Mary Wilson Avant threw a one hitter against Florida so Georgia did get a win in that series but game two and three was like Florida came back very mad very upset um and made a lot of adjustments at the plate good two strike hitting good two out hitting they took I think almost 20 walks in the last two games so seeing the ball a lot better but the entertainment that you're referring to Beth was the fact that in game three in the sixth inning the lights went out that's Mm. you know only the second time that that's happened to me in about the last year so I know (laughs) you Michelle and I were calling a game in Clearwater uh Washington and South Carolina it happened and then it happened again So during that time, uh, Bella, the St. Bernard puppy, who was the dog of Sydney Kuma, the second baseman for Georgia, she got a lot of love. She got a lot of pets. She became a complete star last weekend, uh, even more so than Justin Fields, who was at the game watching his sister Jaden and taking a lot of pictures. So it was an eventful weekend, I think, in Athens, even though we weren't there, we got to see a lot of Bella and see the lights go out and just kind of stay on our toes a little bit, Beth. It was interesting. So um, Jen, you're, you have your hand up. What's going on? <laughs> no, I was just saying, I'll, I'll add some input. I was going to talk about Justin Fields and Amanda's text message saying, Justin Fields is here at the game. I said, Oh, here, like in your living room where you're calling the game makes it sound like they were hanging out together. Um, but I want to talk about, you know, the pack. I'm just, you guys are talking about the sec. I want to talk about the pack a bit. Uh, Oregon state took a game from Oregon guys. And it wasn't just a game. It was an eight to one 
huge, or excuse me, seven, no, eight to one. Oh gosh, sorry. Eight to one game where uh, Elizabeth Mason threw a, a two hitter. And so Oregon's going in to play UCLA this weekend. And with those four game series, Oregon decided to throw, you know, their three and four pitcher in game two that counts for the pack. So you have options, right? You can throw them game two or game three. Game three doesn't count. So I found that to be a very interesting technique or strategy by Oregon. And it makes me think, what are they going to do against UCLA this weekend? Speaking of strategy, uh, I saw a strategy that didn't work out too well for Auburn this weekend. They played Arkansas, who's obviously undefeated in the SEC still. But their strategy was to pitch to Braxton Burnside for Arkansas. And it didn't really work out for them because I think in the first two games, she single-handedly beat the Auburn Tigers in two games. She had six out of the 10 RBIs for Arkansas on the weekend. So I think Auburn learned in game one and two, hey, we probably shouldn't pitch to this girl. So in game three, they decided not to pitch to her. They walked her four times, had a chance, only only lost two to nothing. I think if they if Auburn had any kind of offensive production to help Shelby Lowe, who, by the way, is an outstanding freshman pitcher. She's a lefty. She's got such great command. She throws pretty much every single pitch. Well, Michelle, <laughs> you've seen her, right? And I think she has the ability to help Auburn a lot. But if they can't score runs, you can't beat them. So it's going to be interesting to see Arkansas plays Alabama. Will Alabama pitch to Braxton and Burnside this weekend? What do you got, Jenny? Well, and I had Alabama last weekend against Texas A&M and Texas A&M just could not pull it off. Alabama came away with the sweep. They scored 33 runs in that series. So they found their bats that had kind of gone a little bit silent in that Kentucky series the week before. But then this week, who do they have? Arkansas. So right now you've got Alabama, Arkansas coming up this weekend. But Alabama, I think, just has not figured out how to close the door. They continue to let Texas A&M back in the game late in the innings, and they've been giving up home runs, which is not normal for Kilfoyle and Fouts in the circle. So it'll be an interesting series this weekend as number one takes number three in SEC play. Amanda, what you got? Yeah, I just wanted to um, back up one thing about the A&M Alabama series. A&M actually did swing the bat very well against Alabama. So I think they actually had uh, their radio guy, Matt Simon, told me, I think it was one of, if not the best offensive performances that AM has had um, the entire year. So uh, go Aggies. Good job. Um, and yeah, that's, I, oh, I wanted to give two more shout outs is to UCF. They lost to Tulsa. So I guess it's more so a shout out to Tulsa, but uh, Tulsa won three games. And then also uh, Texas state an 18 game win streak that they're on right now. They have South Alabama coming up and also Louisiana, and they beat AM last night as well. They're looking really good on that 18-game win streak. Ooh, you know, when we're talking about walks, by the way, for Braxton Burnside, let's let's give some perspective. The all-time intentional walks leader, Stacey Newman. Ooh, she was uh, she was a bit of a nightmare for pitchers. And remember Ronnie Nelson at Cal, 395 walks, Jenny Dalton Hill. 395. That's a lot of walks. And I do need to give a shout out to Bailey Hemphill who beat the Alabama career walks record at Alabama this past weekend against Texas A&M. She passed the great Haley McClenney. So now her name is among some of those really big oh, nice. at Alabama. All right. Uh, we, we have uh, some uh, big previews still to come. Uh, uh, Jersey uh, Meg is on deck, but uh, the front runner so far for the episode name all involve Amanda Scarborough. Uh, backhanded compliments. She just whacked UCF on that one. 
Um, is Justin Fields in Scarborough's living room? That's that's not a bad name for an episode. But I think right now is, as you know, I love a little play on words. Bella the ball, huh? Bella of the ball, Bella the ball. So th- love that one. Love things it. to consider. No pressure on Jersey Meg right now uh, to uh, come up with uh, something better inadvertently, as she tells us. Number two on your uh, your lineup card. Follow along at Seven Innings Podcast on uh, on your social media. Meg's going to talk about our predetermined sites for the NCAA and and how that might affect things in the postseason. Welcome, Jersey Meg, everybody. Yeah, so let's talk a little NCAA softball postseason. A lot of talk on Twitter, a lot of people talking about what the NCAA is planning to do in the postseason. So uh, what I am about to reveal is not necessarily official. The NCAA still has not obviously released this officially. However, they have been communicating with the softball membership, i.e. the coaches and the teams, what the plan is starting to shape up to be for the softball postseason. So uh, I did have a conversation with the NCAA earlier this week as we talk weekly to plan for our coverage of the postseason. The plan, America, is for ESPN to have every pitch of every game throughout the entire postseason. So uh, get excited because it's going to happen. I will obviously be a little more gray by the time it's over, but it's going to (laughs) happen. But what the NCAA is going to do is 16 predetermined sites. So know that teams can bid to host, which is no different than every other year. So every year the teams do bid to host and they have to meet a lineage of NCA requirements to be able to do that in a COVID year and in a non-COVID year. Um, so they all bid to host. That process obviously started a little bit earlier this year. Uh, and the NCA is going to receive those host bids by next week, they will then evaluate them based on the criteria, criteria that they have put forth uh, for a pandemic year, so to speak. And then they will actually determine the 16 regional host sites on April 26th. And those will become public because you obviously can't tell the teams that they're hosting and not tell the world that they're not hosting. Mm-hmm. So we will know the 16 regional host sites by April 26th. From there, with the super regionals, and this is still a work in progress with regards to the NCA making decisions, so I don't want to misspeak here, but the way it is trending at the moment is that the NCAA would then select the eight super regional host sites from those 16 seeded teams or host teams. I don't want to say seeded teams. Let's say host teams after the regionals conclude. So the eight super regional sites in a way will be predetermined because they will come from those 16 host sites, but they will be determined after the regionals conclude. So let me try to explain a little bit why it's different than in a normal year. Cause you would think, well, that's a normal year. Well, it's not necessarily because if you were to have two sites that had upsets, so let's just call the, the seven seed site and the 10 seed site have an upset and the seven seed loses at home and the 10 seed loses at home. Well, then what the NCAA would do is use a formula to take the next highest seeded team or the team that meets the criteria the most to host, assuming that they put in a bid to host. That won't happen here this year. So if two seeded teams or host teams, again, I probably shouldn't call them seeded teams. I guess they will be numbered one through 16, but if two host teams lose, One of those two host teams is hosting a super regional. It's just going to get ugly Mm -hmm. because it won't be their team (laughs) there. Now, 
that's not likely to happen. In most instances, we go chalk in the regionals and it's really in the super regionals where we see some of those upsets. Uh, but that right now is what the NCAA is planning for the postseason. Very different than any other championship that has been played to date. And it would be the same for college baseball, just to be clear. Uh, the NCAA wants to get out in front of this in terms of testing, in terms Correct. of safety protocols, facilities available, uh, hotels being available, um, all uh, predetermined by which sites these are. We, we should point out, too, there are local uh, you know, government protocols and state mm -hmm. protocols still in place that could mean you know, it's not the top 16 seeds hosting and it not it's not necessarily the top eight seeds hosting a super regional. It, it could come down to, um, you know, local protocols and, and things like that. And, and th there's still the possibility that a lot more opens up nationwide by the time the NCAA tournament rolls around. So I think fingers crossed that that's going to be the case as, as more and more people get vaccinated. Yeah. And I will just add Beth that you're a hundred percent correct in the sense that it is very challenging for the NCAA to operate championships when you have 50 different states with 50 different governing ordinances. And I can just tell you personally, having de dealt with it in terms of television crews and dealing with the other NCAA championships. By the way, ESPN is televising 26 NCAA championships in 13 weeks. So to give you perspective on that, because all of them overlap now, we normally are contracted to do 29 NCAA championships in nine months in an, a normal academic calendar year. So the, the work with the NCAA and ESPN that's going in to cover all these NCAA championships, it's enormous. And just the testing component alone is unbelievably challenging. I don't envy the NCAA and their what they have to do to keep these student athletes safe and the testing component. So just know that it's actually a huge win for the softball membership that the super regionals are not also predetermined because um, just turning those testing component around in three days is going to be unbelievably challenging for the NCAA. Mm -hmm. Meg, I have a question. I have no idea if you know the answer, I'm still going to ask it anyway. Do you know if when they announce on the 26, those 16 sites, that those sites, those teams of those sites are guaranteed to play at home? Um, I, don't have, I don't have the official answer to that, so I don't want to misspeak, Jen. But we will, when we get closer to the 26, we will have someone from the NCAA join us on the podcast and let them explain exactly the process that the committee went through, what, the, what went into it, so that we can get America clarity on that. But really what they're determining as far as I understand it on the 26 is the 16 host sites. It doesn't necessarily mean um, or guarantee certain things. Now, I think it would be pretty odd if a team were selected to host and then didn't stay home and host, but um, that I, I'm going to leave that for the NCAA to, to tell us what's going to happen there. A lot can happen in four weeks from the time that the 26th happens to the actual selections of the 64 teams. And by the way, just having a 64 team field is a win because there have been a lot of sports that have been reduced to that normally would be 64 that are 48 or 32. Yeah. Uh, a lot of NCAA championships have been reduced in terms of the, the number of teams that have gotten in. And, and bearing in mind too, sometimes it just comes down to other things that may be going on on your campus, those particular weekends that may prevent you from putting in a bid. Um, you know, so th th those are all things to, uh, to consider, but um, in, in summation, officially, not official, officially, I think is where we're at on that. Thank you very much, Jersey Meg.
Sounds like a podcast title. Well said. Officially not official, officially. Um, we got some big uh, weekend series coming up this weekend. Once again, it's BMO, Scarborough, Shro, Bro, JDH, Schmitty, Jersey Meg, got the whole cast of characters with us. Uh, Northwestern Minnesota this weekend, Arkansas, Alabama this weekend, and UCLA, Oregon, hopefully this weekend. We start in, uh, in the Midwest. Let's talk Big Ten. Northwestern right now in first place in the conference. Minnesota in third place. And uh, as, as I scroll on, on my, uh, my interwebs right now, it does look like Michigan in second place in the conference is a go for Ohio State this weekend after they had to postpone their Michigan State series last weekend. So uh, Northwestern and Minnesota, and we've talked a lot, uh, guys, about you know the fact that they're only going to be playing against one another. Northwestern's been hitting it real well. Minnesota, we know with Amber Pfizer and, and uh, Natalie Den Hartog. Uh, Smitty, you and I are going to be calling one of these these games in this matchup. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm excited to see these teams because they've basically been hidden because they um, they have played about half the number of games that teams in the SEC uh, and other conferences have played. So I think this is going to be a coming out party for the Big Ten for people to be able to see how good they are. I'm excited to see Danielle Williams, this lefty. Um, she's been throwing very well. Northwestern hit really well last weekend against Maryland. So they had a couple of uh, two out RBIs in the games that they won. The game that they ended up losing, they lost late. Uh, Williams kind of um, ran into some trouble in the seventh inning and, and they got walked off on, but uh, I think they're a very complete team. And then of course, Minnesota, you can never count them out because they have uh, Amber Pfizer in their circle. So I'm really hoping that we get those two aces matched up for the game that we're calling in, in the series. And then, um, you know, for their offense, it always comes down to Den Hartog and her ability to, to hit for power. Um, you know, she was, two for three with a double, a two run home run and two RBIs and a, and a big win um, last weekend. So, you know, for me, it's handling expectations of, of them and uh, seeing the hitters for the big 10 really come out against super strong pitching. Yeah. You're talking about Beth, uh, the offense at Northwestern. And I mean, they're hitting for average 316. They also have a little bit of speed too. 45 stolen bases for them. Uh, my area of concern for this matchup is just looking at the batting average for Minnesota. They're only hitting 240 as a team and they're going up against who could be the best or one of the best pitchers in the big 10 with Daniel Williams. So um, interested to see how this one plays out too. One last thing, Michelle, is that Minnesota hasn't lost to the same team twice. So they have those five losses, but they haven't lost to the same. One team hasn't beaten them more than once. I found that interesting, Michelle. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. And so if you're Northwestern and you look at their stats and who's doing damage, it's then hard talk. So it's the same thing with, Braxton Burnside, do you just walk the best hitter and pitch around her? Uh, you know, if I'm Northwestern, I'm absolutely doing that. I'm making somebody else beat me this weekend. When I look at Northwestern's schedule, sure, I mean, you said they're hitting about 364. I'm going to say they're untested, but is anyone in the Big Ten tested? But who they've played, Penn State, Rutgers, Michigan State, Indiana, Ohio State, Wisconsin, they've yet to really play a top team in the Big Ten. So coming up with this series, Minnesota, and then they've got Michigan, and Illinois is a sleeper team in the Big Ten to me. So I feel like coming up Northwestern will finally get a chance to test that offense against decent pitching. 
I think this is going to be really good for the eye test for America to see these guys. I think we also are going to see Michigan a little bit later on in April. Remember, too, when we go back a couple of years, the last time we had an NCAA tournament, the Big Ten was strong. They had six teams in. Minnesota got to the Women's College World Series, and Northwestern reached uh, the Super Regional and lost to Oklahoma. So uh, this is a a group that has a lot of players back on these rosters, and, and we'll find out. Uh, when we see them on uh, Friday night. Um, Arkansas and Alabama, huge. So the first half of the schedule for Arkansas was pretty good. Uh, second half is a whole new ball game. They start playing all the big dogs in, in the league, and it starts out with Alabama. And can they stay undefeated in the conference? When it comes to Arkansas, for me, their opponents in the SEC have not been at the top. They've played South Carolina, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and Auburn. So their biggest test was against Auburn, in my opinion, this last weekend. Um, But ahead of them, they've got Georgia, Missouri, and LSU. They lead the SEC in home runs. They've got 69. They've got Murderer's Row with Braxton Burnside, Lenny Malkin, and Daniel Gibson. And I think Michelle talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, those three are actually beating the rest of the seven SEC teams. So for me, it's going to come down to who do they pitch to and who do they not. Alabama, though, they are now figuring out how to hit. They got their bats going last week against Texas A&M. They have had a tougher pre-early conference schedule. They played Auburn, Tennessee, Kentucky, A&M, and ahead of them, they've got Florida, Georgia, and Ole Miss. So for Alabama has the tougher all-around SEC schedule. Arkansas, though, right now undefeated in SEC play, the first time in Arkansas history to have that 12-0 start. And in talking with Patrick Murphy this morning, he said, you know what? It's hard to beat a team who's going on a streak like that, but that's going to be the challenge that we have ahead of us. Jen, what do you got? Well, a little bit about that streak is actually the best start ever in SEC history is none other than Alabama at 15 and 0. So not only are they going, you know, head to head, but Arkansas has a chance to actually, you know, take over Alabama's record. Uh, I forgot that the SEC played last year because the PAC didn't. So Arkansas opened up with Alabama in 2020 and None other than Daniel Gibson had the solo RBI to actually beat Alabama game one, one to zero. I got the chance to sit down with Braxton Burnside this morning and just talking to her about their mentality, the video that they've been watching, what they're doing for the state of Arkansas. It was just so cool to listen and to kind of just get a front row seat to that. And she specifically said, if they don't end up in Oklahoma City at the end of the year, they're going to be disappointed. And that gave me goosebumps about a program like Arkansas. Hey, everybody, Jen Schroeder here, sitting down with the queen of Bogle, Braxton Burnside herself. She just broke the single season home run record for the University of Arkansas. And this week, her and her team have a big series against the University of Alabama. They're finally ranked in the top 10. And yes, I say finally because I've been an Arkansas Razorback fan for quite some time. And this meeting this weekend will be their first chance at competing against another top 10 team in program history. Braxton, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for having me. 
You guys have been on an absolute tear. I know just two nights ago you played and you guys broke a ton of records. We're talking about it. So tell me a little bit about what your team has done. Yeah, what we've done is just absolutely incredible. And I think just, you know, the the crazy part about it is we're just a team that's going out there and having so much fun. And I think it shows we just absolutely love each other. We took the COVID year and we just flipped it around and made the best of it, really. And um, it's just been so fun to go out there and compete with these girls because whenever we're having fun, we're competing at our absolute best. And, you know, we just have a love for each other and a fight for each other. And this year has just been like any other team that I've been on. And not just a COVID year, but for you personally, you actually started your career at the University of Missouri, transferred and due to the transfer rule, had to sit out a year and then had a COVID year. And now you're getting to compete in your home state of Arkansas. So talk to me a little bit about not just sitting out one year, but two year and getting to compete in your hometown. Yeah, it was really, really hard. And, you know, I learned a lot in my redshirt year. I would truly recommend it to almost anyone just because it's nice to see the game from a different perspective. And I was just able to grow my game mentally a lot. Um, And then going into last year, it was so heartbreaking, you know, just so much uncertainty and so many unanswered questions. And we just didn't know what the future held. And so now going into this year, I just think we have a greater appreciation for the game. And we're not taking a single second for granted because it was just taken from us last year. And then just playing, you know, in my home state and with Arkansas across my chest, every single time I lace my cleats up, I'm just so, so thankful that Coach Stoffel gave me the opportunity to come to Arkansas and represent, you know, my home state, but represent all the people here that have supported me from day one and are now cheering me on as a Razorback. It just means the world to me. I want to talk just a little bit about your personal success. I know you're a big team player, so we'll get back to that. But every time you step in the box... I have been watching you all year long. And every time you step in, it's like you, I swear, I'm like, she's going to hit a home run. She's like, you seem so locked in. You're taking such just massive hacks. It's so impressive. So you talk about your mindset and perfecting that a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal mindset in the box and what you're trying to accomplish? Not necessarily the outcome. I know you're not trying to hit a home run every at bat, but what you're trying to accomplish in each at bat and your mentality. Yeah, so my mentality, um, honestly, is I just don't want to get cheated while I'm up there. Um, If I have three opportunities to hit the ball, you know, three strikes, then I'm going to take a full hack at three, you know, three swings and three different opportunities. But I think my biggest thing is preparation. Um, You know, I am a big preparer and I like to be prepared for what I'm seeing. And so I just think that being prepared sets you up for success. And so whether that is watching film, whether that is mentally, you know, mentally visualizing success, visualizing me seeing the draw ball coming in or the rise ball or whatever it is, and then just preparing my swing for the pitcher that I'm going to see. I'm a huge film watcher. I like to watch film on every single pitcher, you know, because why not? Like if we have the technology, then, you know, we might as well utilize it to the best of our ability. And that's doing nothing but preparing me for success. And then once I'm in the box, I'm not thinking about anything. I'm trying to see a strike and see the center of the ball and put a good swing on it. And I just feel like this year that I've really been able to capitalize on the pitches that I've gotten, the good pitches that I've gotten, and just making sure that I'm not stretching my zone too much and staying within my approach. Even when things don't go my way, just staying within my approach and knowing that, um, you know, if I'm prepared, then the outcome will just do its thing. I love it. Let's look ahead a little bit to this weekend, huge series against the university of Alabama. Um, I'm sure 
coming from another SEC school, you, you know what type of series that is. You know what it means to your program. You know what it means to the entire softball world. Um, what are you guys doing to prepare? What type of film have you watched? Uh, talk to us a little bit about what you're anticipating for this weekend. Well, I think it's just going to be full of so much excitement. Um, and it just feels like this weekend that finally for Arkansas softball program that we're able to play for a little bit more than usual. You know, we're ranked in the top 10 for the first time. Well, now we're bringing a top five team, top 10 team in, and we're going to have our first top 10 matchup at Vogel. So it's just so cool to see the strides that the program's made. And, you know, we've earned every bit of that. And so now to have a, a huge SEC series like this, it just means a little bit more than it has in the oh, past. Oh, the little SEC, it just means more. You had to get that in there for the Pac-12. Exactly. <laughs> Did you catch that? <laughs> Um, anyways, but yeah, we're just, we're trying also at the same time, trying not to make it too big, you know, because you can make it too big and kind of overhype it. And so for us, we're just going to prepare the same way that we've prepared in the past and we're not going to do, you know, just a whole lot different. And we're going to watch our film, you know, and plenty of film, plenty of film on all SEC schools. Looking back to last year, we played Bama, um, you know, and then into this end of this year. And so we're just going to watch film. We're going to go into practice. Today's our off day. We're going to go into practice Thursday and we're going to prepare like always. But, you know, the one thing that I think is going to be more than ever is the excitement and just the anxiousness to get out there and play and, you know, hope that we can have three, a three, you know, good game series and to bring just all of this um excitement and hype and top 10 matchup that we have truly earned a bogle for the first time means the world to us it gives me goosebumps just to think about all those kids that sit in the outfield that scream your guys's oh, names yeah. it's bogle is such an amazing atmosphere to be a part of okay very last yes. question and then i'll let you go looking ahead so looking into regionals super regionals and potentially a women's college world series at the end of this year where do you want to see Arkansas finish? What goals do you guys have for your program? And, and what, where do you want to end your career at? Or you're coming back next year, actually, right? Or no? Um, okay, never mind. You don't need to answer it. But <laughs> if this will be your last year, where do you yeah. want to be standing at the end of it all? Yeah, well, of course, our expectations are as high as they've ever been. And, you know, I don't think we see ourselves anywhere else but Oklahoma City at the end of the year. And I think that's every team's, you know, dreams and aspirations. But I just think, you know, this season that we've had, we wouldn't expect anything less. At this point, we're not surprised by anything, any of our talent, any of our numbers, you know, any of our outcomes. We have truly earned it. And, you know, our standards and our expectations have just been raised. And um, I think that for this team and for myself, I just see our season ending somewhere in Oklahoma City. And um, I think the way that we're playing, you know, we have we have a great shot at that. But just making sure that we're staying within our ourself and our approach and not getting too outside of that. And I think we're we're gonna be we're gonna do great things. And um, also just having fun the way that we have been. We're not going to do anything different, you know, win or lose. The outcome doesn't matter. We're just going to uh, come out here and have fun and be the Arkansas Razorbacks that we've been all year. And for my story to end in Oklahoma City would just be absolutely awesome. Thank you. Braxton Birdside from the University of Arkansas, the single season home run record. Thanks for sitting down with us at Seven Innings Podcast. We appreciate it. Good stuff, Shro. Schmitty, what you got? Yeah, so one thing that I think is very interesting because we obviously know that uh, 
Burnside is mashing the ball. Um, and so she'll obviously be going up against Fouts. Fouts has given up seven home runs this year, Ooh. four of them in the last three appearances. So I think it'll be interesting if they do pitch to Burnside, how that matchup plays out. But I think another thing about Arkansas that I find intriguing is that if you look at the last 47 innings of both Arkansas and Alabama from a pitching and defensive standpoint, in the last 47 innings, Arkansas's given up just 28 hits. Alabama's given up 53 hits. Arkansas's given up just 12 runs. Alabama's given up 30 runs. And if you look at errors, the defense, Arkansas, four team errors, Alabama, 13. So we talk about the offense of Arkansas, but I think the pitching and the defense has been outstanding as well. How did you land on 47 innings, Smitty? Uh, well, I had a little help doing some research. <laughs> that's, that's I knew it. I knew it. Selective <laughs> innings. You're a selective innings picker. Exactly. <laughs> you well, Michelle, uh, well, Michelle, you talked about the pitching and I look at both of these teams and their pitching is going to be a huge highlight because they both have two aces. And for Arkansas specifically, Mary half has carried the load this year because autumn storms have been, has been struggling with the back injury. I saw Autumn Storms pitch against Auburn this weekend. She looked healthy. She threw a complete game, which shows me that her endurance is up. She's getting stronger. She's feeling better one through seven innings. And she just got a filthy drop ball that totally matches uh, up against Mary Half's great rise ball. So they offer something really different. And similarly, you have Montana Fouts, Lexi Kilfoyle, that kind of balance each other out in the circle for the tide. But I look at these two offenses and their pitching may be similar where they have two aces, but their offenses couldn't be more different. Alabama does not hit the long ball very well. They're going to kill you, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts by trying to hit singles. They play small ball. They're going to bunt. They're going to have good slappers in the lineup like Alyssa Brown, Alexis Mack. They're going to have stolen bases. That's something that Arkansas absolutely does not do. The other problem that I saw with Arkansas, if we're looking for areas that Arkansas needs to improve, is really and truly, with the exception of Braxton Burnside, you take her out of the lineup this weekend, and they had some pretty dismal offensive production from the rest of their lineup. Danielle Gibson was over, had like three opportunities with bases loaded or runners in scoring position, and she just she struck out. Now, they went against a good Shelby Lowe from Arkansas to do that, but really and truly, no other hitter in their lineup stepped up in a big way against Auburn. So they're going to need that because if I'm Alabama, it's an easy decision. Do not pitch to Braxton Burnside, make the rest of the team beat you. What do you think, Jenny? Well, and if you watched their midweek last night, it was on Tuesday, they had six home runs in that game. Kayla Green had two home runs herself. And so you talk about what's the offense look like without Braxton Burnside. Well, the good news for Arkansas is everyone is back. We know that Hannah McEwen was out with COVID protocols earlier in the year. We had Hannah Gamble out with a broken hand because of a pitch that hit her. She was back in the midweek. We had Danielle Gibson out who was because of concussion protocols. And so that Auburn series was her first time back in the lineup after going through those concussion protocols. Autumn Storms, you mentioned her hurt back, but she looked great against Auburn with that drop ball. She pitched the midweek as well. So for an Arkansas team who has had so much, much disruption because of COVID and injuries, you are now seeing an entire Arkansas squad who is back in the lineup. And for me, they're playing at home. Just a great scenario for them to be able to try to match what Jen, you were talking about, that 15-0 Alabama start. Are they going to be able to tie it up? It's going to come down to Kilfoyle and Fouts in the circle. 
Michelle, you mentioned the five, the four home runs that Kilfoyle gave up. Well, five home runs in her last four appearances. Fouts has given up four in her last two appearances. So the long ball, they are susceptible and Arkansas will definitely capitalize if the pitching circle cannot keep the ball off the wide of the plate. Amanda, what do you got? Just a, just a quick ad, just talking about Alabama's speed. Um, super impressive. Kayla talked about the death by a thousand paper cuts. I literally was thinking that the entire time that they played AM and I was watching those games, um, the exact same thing. But I'm so curious. We talked about Arkansas's pitching. They've made 30 errors. So how are they going to be able to handle Alabama's speed? Alabama's speed is awesome. And then I think about, too, their power, being able to drive the ball to the outfield. Alabama, Arkansas, that is. Alabama has one of the speediest outfields in the entire country. So will that play a part? Will their speed kind of take advantage of Arkansas's defense and also take advantage of their offense, too? Well, and I think those errors, Amanda, are coming because they've been out of position so much because of the injuries to Gamble, McEwen. I mean, for me, that's a big deal. When you mess with an infield and an outfield defensive set, you've got so many different miscues because you haven't been able to practice it regularly and become comfortable with ranges and distances and arm strength. Jen, what do you have? One tiny little add-on, uh, you look at the stolen base attempts. So Arkansas has only attempted to steal five times all year. Bama stole six bases last weekend. However, Kayla Green, Arkansas's catcher, is leading the SEC and caught stealing with seven. So she's thrown out more times than Arkansas has even attempted. And she has sat one or two in the SEC books her entire career for caught stealing. So it's an interesting matchup. All right, I, you guys, I sense you guys are pushing death by a thousand paper cuts for the name of the episode. I think it's good as a horror movie, but I don't know if it's going to get clicks. Um, well, uh, under consideration, uh, let's move uh, down our lineup card and preview UCLA and Oregon as they get ready to tussle. Interesting, Jen Schro, as we jump into this matchup, they've actually already played twice non-conference games and split those earlier in the year. It was Yanez and Faremo uh, getting the wins respectively for their schools. I don't believe Garcia was involved then. No, Garcia was out for an injury. Uh, so game one, they got to play at Farrington Stadium and ASU. It was a great matchup. Oregon took game one, three to one. Each team had six hits apiece. It was very evenly matched, but three of UCLA's hits came consecutively in the last inning. So it was just a little too late for them. Then game two, UCLA took that one decisively nine to three. I feel like this is a very interesting matchup because UCLA has had two weekends off. For me, it's kind of like caged animals with UCLA's offense. I feel like they are just ready to go. Brooke Yanez was so impressive against them, but when you take her out of the equation, Truly, pitching-wise, Oregon has been struggling a little bit, and it's tough to struggle when you're going to face a lineup one through nine that is so dominant. And then you're adding Garcia back into the Bruins' defense. So I, not as just an alumni, but as a pure softball fan, I will be very surprised if Oregon has what it takes to take this series. Kayla, as an Oregon native, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be tough. And I think it almost hurts Oregon more that they beat UCLA earlier this season. I think UCLA is going to say, you know what, not again. We're not going to mess around with Oregon. But I think something that's really important, and you talked about it, Jen, is UCLA's had two weekends off. And that's completely true. They haven't played their last eight games 
games. They've all been canceled. But the caveat with that is not only have they not played those games, they have put a pause on all team related activities. They're in COVID pro- that they're not practicing. They're not seeing live pitching. They're not getting an opportunity to be together and gel together as a team and say, here's what we need to work on this. Let's go to go to the field and practice those things. So I think that there's going to be a huge balance. Do they come out a little bit rusty, maybe, maybe not unified, or are they well rested? Do they take this opportunity to see a lot of film, to go back and watch those previous Oregon games and say, here's where we can improve uh, against Brooke Giannis. Here's where we can make our improvements, you know, defensively, offensively, whatever it may be. So I think it's a big opportunity for UCLA and something that for me is a good test to see how other teams are going to handle COVID protocols in the future, because we really haven't seen an opportunity where you have time off without being able to practice, Michelle. Yeah, Kayla, get out of my head because it's exactly what I was thinking about uh, UCLA. To me, this whole series comes down to the fact that they haven't been on the field for two weeks. And so even if you practice on your own, how do you get up to game speed, right? It's not just about hitting off a tee, hitting off a machine. It's seeing a rise ball, seeing a drop ball, seeing that lefty spin from Yanez, you know, and UCLA battled her very hard, even though she ended up uh, beating them. They had six at bats with six or more pitches, which means they were working her deep into counts at times, but it still to me comes down that how to you mentally, physically get yourself back in game speed shape which is completely different than practice shape versus not even practicing at all. So to me, to me, that's, that's the huge question mark on top of two very talented teams. And Oh yes, I do think prior to this pause for UCLA, they played the, a much harder schedule. Um, so I think this is going to be another big test for Oregon. Well, and Oregon's only got 19 errors on the year and shortstop and second base are such an important part. Those those spots up the middle, that's where you see a lot of those errors. And right now, Alyssa Brito is, has not been in the lineup. She was out during Oregon State's, the four games against Oregon State. She is leading Oregon in average. She's got nine home runs, a 9-10 slugging percentage, and five stolen bases, and zero errors on the year. So without Brito at shortstop, I think that really changes the dynamic for Oregon. Yeah, I agree with you, Jenny, for sure. Um, I, I had a chance to call Virginia Tech's games right after they had that two-week break. So being able to see how they did start out a little bit rusty, Keely Rochard, who is one of the best pitchers in the country, you could tell she was missing her release. You could tell she was out of rhythm, got progressively better offensively and in the circle as the, the series went on. So that tells me that if I'm Oregon and I know that UCLA has been off for two weeks, you have to strike first and strike hard early in the game. So I'm definitely looking for that to see if they can take advantage of maybe potentially a slow start for UCLA, especially in the circle. If their command is a little bit off, can draw some walks, get some mistakes over the middle of the plate. Like that could be a big chance for Oregon to jump ahead and gain momentum. All right. Going to be a good one coming up this weekend, UCLA and Oregon, and we will have game three of that series or a game two, excuse me, of that series on Saturday night. Uh, moving down our lineup card, a little shakeup in the ACC. We've been singing Duke's praises uh, through the first half of the season. And uh, Amanda Scarborough, Virginia Tech, uh, took them down. And at the same time, Florida State was hammering Notre Dame. And so the Seminoles move back on top as uh, Duke takes a tumble. 
Yeah. Well, think about if you're Duke, you went from the highest of all highs when their 20 game win streak that got broke by Clemson to kind of the lowest of all lows. They went on a five game lose streak or lost streak, whatever that's, whatever that's going to be called, Losing. but they lost five in a row. Okay. That's all that matters guys. They lost five in a row, but however, they did end the series with beating Keely Rochard and getting that, that final win against Virginia tech. So they had lost five in a row, ended that series on a win. So Duke, if anything, maybe just starting to put some things together, Deja Davis hasn't been great for them offensively. And I think that that's kind of what has hurt them. She's gone from leadoff hitter to five to six to back at the leadoff spot when they had that win. Um, but when I think of, when I look at Florida state, Beth, they played Florida back-to-back -back days they lost the first game and then won the second game whenever they were uh, back in Tallahassee since that loss Florida State has gone 14 and two and in their two losses there were one run losses and they have not given up more than two runs and sit in a game in 16 games so their pitching is clicking their defense has turned 19 double plays and this is a team we're used to seeing them hit bombs. They only have 17 home runs. They're relying on their pitching and defense, which is not what we're used to seeing out of Florida state. And it's, it's keeping them in games and it's winning them games, Kayla. Uh, yeah. And I think that's where I see Lonnie Alameda and her coaching style fit perfectly with that. They're a team that doesn't panic. They trust themselves. They trust their culture and what they work on each and every single day. And I remember a couple of years ago watching Florida State prepare for their national championship game against Washington and how relaxed they were, how much they trusted themselves. And, and that starts at the top with the coaching staff. So I think when they can go, they, they get upset by Virginia Tech, it, it's kind of a wake-up call. Then you go and you beat Arizona two out of three, which really did feel like a super regional type of weekend. And, and you get confidence, your pitching staff starts to gain confidence, and you start to figure out who you are as a team. You can tell hell something has absolutely clicked for Florida State and it honestly it makes me nervous for Duke this weekend because what Duke is missing is that that what it takes to win championship culture that Lonnie Alameda knows and is built and that's just because it's taken her a long time to do that and she's ingrained that in her culture well and team speed is so important for Florida State they don't hit a ton of home runs we already mentioned that only 17 on the year Duke has 28 so a couple more long balls but Amanda like you mentioned Deja Davis had just has not been able to do a lot at the top of the lineup for Duke she did get the RBI that won the game and avoided the sweep by Virginia Tech they only had three hits in that game, though, so they were able to find a way to push that run across, just that timely two RBI hit by Davis. That was the one that gave them the win. For me, it just comes down to team speed with Florida State. Because they don't hit the long ball, they definitely look for those doubles, and Sydney Sherrill is the hitter right now who just hits a ton of them. She's second in career doubles with 55 she leads the, and they lead the ACC in double plays. So defense is stepping up. They're getting the extra base hits. It may not be the long ball, but with the speed of Florida State with 63 stolen bases, first in the ACC, they use their speed. They use those gap to gap shots and they are just tough to put away because they won't go away. Michelle? Yeah, I do find it interesting when you really kind of pour over their stats. As a team, Florida State is only hitting 252. That's not typical for Florida State. Only 17 home runs. What is typical is the 63 stolen bases, so they're putting they're putting other opposing defenses in motion and creating havoc. But 
think about this win streak that you talked about, Amanda, that they've gone on. When this team really starts to turn around their batting and starts to hit better because they have struggled early on in the season, they're going to continue to win games. I mean, it's just amazing to me that they're as good as they are with, with a, two, a 250 team batting average. All right, that one's going to, uh, the uh, ACC will be fun to watch here through the remainder uh, of the second part of the season. Let's move on to our mailbag. We've got uh, questions from you, the viewer slash listener. Uh, and uh, we turn to our beloved Amanda Scarborough, who um, will figure out lost games in a row at some point before the end of the season. And, oh. uh, and we'll all be better for it. Amanda, what do the fans want to know? Okay. The fans want to know first question from Adrian who lives in San Diego. Will Jesse Harper break Lauren's career home run record? Let's go big to start it off. What do you guys think? Jump in here and I'm going to say yes, but I don't know how long she'll hold it for because here comes Jocelyn Allo scooting right up behind her, putting up big numbers. The other thing I'm interested in seeing is can she catch Laura Espinosa's season record of 37. That might also be in jeopardy. Well, and my question also becomes, I know you, the younger crowd is always like, that's so dumb, but I think there needs to be an asterisk next to those players who get five seasons to beat these records. I just, it, I know that they are capable and they are qualified and they only got that half year, but that's an additional 25 games that a traditional four-year starter just doesn't get. Michelle? All right. All right. Fine. Jen, get out of my head now, too. Between you and Kayla, you're still on my thunder when I'm talking about stuff. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's true, though. That's exactly where your head goes, though, right? I think everybody's like, asterisk, you know, uh, they had a, another half season, another 25 games. I think when you really look at it, though, Lauren Chamberlain, and we've done the math before, is that it took her far less games to that's get true. to that number. And I think that that's going to be the, um, I think that'll always be the disclaimer that people will remember with Lauren Chamberlain is that it took her many, you know, a lot fewer games to get to Game, that. Games and, games and played appearances. Yeah. What, what I think will happen is we will have the same wonderful arguments uh, between Kat Osterman and Monica Abbott about strikeouts total and strikeouts per seven innings, which is always fun to get one of those two started on that. Tro? <laughs> no, I was just, just going to say, Jenny, I get the asterisk. I get it. Uh, but Michelle, back to the, the conversation. Everyone's going to always say that Lauren did it and fewer less at bats. When you look at history, let's say softball in 20 years and 30 years, Will that still be the conversation? I don't think it will be. I think people will just say Jesse Harper has the record or Lauren Chamberlain has the record. And I don't think as the years go on, people will remember that. And that's when I really feel that that asterisk may be important to know. Well, that then we need to keep them educated every year in the podcast. We have to remind them. Okay, there you go. But I agree. <laughs> I agree. Well, and I think we need to go back and think about the players that played with the white ball versus the yellow ball. Those yeah, Jenny. Okay. Are nothing compared to one another because the ball is so different and those names from the white ball are completely eliminated from our record books now because of the offensive prowess that the ball and the bat technology has really brought into the game do i think pepper okay. will break it 100 percent. do i think that she will be able to get it soon i don't know it's going to go down to the wire and it's not going to be by a lot Okay, before we go down the white ball versus yellow ball rabbit hole, let's go to the next question. Like hitting two socks. Okay. 
This is from Juliana. I'm a big Washington fan. Gabby Plain is amazing, but I'm a little bit concerned about how many innings she's putting in. Uh, am I overreacting? And before you guys answer, I want to let you know that Gabby Plain has pitched 114 innings. We also have other pitchers who have pitched similar amounts of innings like Keeler O'Shard, 126, Mary Half. We'll play against Alabama this weekend, 124, Leanna Johnson, 105. So there are other pitchers, you guys, who are taking the bulk of the load. So is it overreacting to think that your team's pitcher is pitching too much and won't be sharp at the end of the season? Uh, I'll hop in real quick. Um, yeah, I think it's always a concern, especially as the season goes on. So the longer uh, we get into the postseason, I think it's a concern. And I also think it's how many of those innings are under duress. In other words, how many of those innings, there's runners on base, you're you're throwing more pitches, you're um, there's a lot of foul off. So I think that it, it's a accumulation of all those numbers. Maybe what's even more important is the number of pitches within those number of innings. Smitty, I'd be curious to know what she has done in her last 47 innings, but perhaps that's a topic for another time. Um, here's, here's what intrigues me about Gabby Plain. two pitchers in history, won the natty going undefeated, Lisa Fernandez, Jay Finch is Gabby Plain going to be able to flirt with that. Come the, uh, come the women's college world series. Okay. So another one that will be up for a good discussion. Great input, Beth. Um, but just to be able to answer as many as we possibly can from the mailbag, uh, Danielle wants to know how many intentional walks is too many. I can't imagine being Braxton Burnside and getting walked four times in a game. I know their strategy behind it, but what is the breaking point of just too many? What do you guys think? Kayla? I think it depends on the situation and the hitter, but Watching that game firsthand and using Braxton Burnside's four walks as a as an example, it worked. I mean, Auburn only gave up two hits or excuse me, two runs in that game. They had a chance if they had any kind of offensive production at all, which they had zero basically the whole weekend, they could have beat Arkansas. And I think you face a better team that does have offense. You are going to score some runs against Arkansas's pitching staff. So for me, I think what you don't want to do as a team is let their best player who is no mystery to anybody beat you. And if you can get away with the walk in a certain situation, you know, there was one time where they didn't walk Braxton Burnside in game two, there was nobody on two outs, just put her on base. I, I think that, you know, it's going to have to be a team by team strategy. I think sometimes pride gets too much in the way of these coaches. And honestly, I I'm with the bend, but don't break mentality. Ben put her on first, but breaking is giving up the home run. I led the nation in walks in 1996. And the only reason that they had to start pitching to me was because the hitters behind me started stepping up. And that's the difference for Braxton Birdside. They've got to find the unique dynamic that gives the hitters behind a little bit more scared, to, like they're a little more scared to throw to them. So that's the difference for me. Just one more really quick. Little Daniela has, I think she's about nine years old, has the best left-handed swing I think I've ever seen. She's an LSU fan. She wants to know, she sent in a video for her question. That's by the, the way, way to roll. Amazing. That's the way to roll. Oh yeah. It's it awesome. Um, so she wants to know who we think is the best shortstop. Let's just all go around quickly and say a quick answer. Go ahead. I mean, Sis Bates is Sis Bates. holds the crown until somebody upsets or, you know, takes it from her. Bree Perez, UCLA, best shortstop, better than Sis Bates. I'm saying it. <laughs> I'm going to throw up. Oh, go ahead. She's an LSU fan. Do we need to include Taylor Pleasance? I mean, she did Taylor send in a video. She sent in a video. For freshman, I'm going to throw out Erin Koffel for Kentucky. She's oh, nice. Best future shortstop. Nice. Yep. 
That's what I was looking at. And also Sammy Williams at Iowa State. She can slug it too. Sorry. Thanks okay. for sending in the video, right? Best but hitting shortstop, Braxton Burnside. <laughs> so good. Oh, great discussion. Good job on the mailbag. Mailbag. Thanks, everybody. Beth. All right. Let's uh, let's go shag some stats. This week on Shagging Stats. Hopefully, we're going to have the legendary Ho-Ro back with us uh, real, real soon on the podcast. Let's shag some stats since we're working the UCLA-Oregon game this weekend. Um, according to the Ducks, the two best winning percentages in softball over the last two years, UCLA and Oregon. So excited to see them head-to-head on Saturday. I'm going to talk about North Texas. So in 2015, Lauren Chamberlain actually set the home run record against North Texas. Currently, Oklahoma is challenging the all-time win streak. They have a chance to break that against none other than North Texas. And guess who their win streak started against? Yep, you got it right, North Texas. Okay, I'm going to talk about the Florida defense. Uh, The past eight years, Florida has finished the year top four in fielding percentage leading the nation. And several of those years, they had the number one fielding percentage right now. They sit at number five. So they're going to try to tack on or go from eight to nine this year. We'll see if they do it, Jenny. Right now, I'm going to bring up a team that we have not talked about Southeastern Louisiana, the numbers 105. They've got 105 stolen bases. That's leads the nation. They have five players with double digit stolen bases. Lindsay Rizzo has 22. She's tied for seventh. Uh, but Kayla, you've got some uh, more stolen base numbers for us. Yeah, Jenny, you and I are just updating the world on the speedsters on the base pass. Uh, I have the two leading single season, or excuse me, there's currently up to this point in the season, uh, players with the best stolen bases, both at 29. So we got a neck and neck tie, everybody. So pay attention. We have Jenna Wildeman from Central Arkansas and Macy McCall from Winthrop. So both of them just blazing on the base base paths. All right, and I'm going to jump in with a uh, another UCLA stat. This one on Rachel Garcia. She has uh, finished 70% of her starts, which is outstanding. And guess what? In her entire career, she's made just three errors. Wow. That was shagging stats. Well done on the uh, stat shagging, ladies. Well done. Uh, who we got for player of the week this week? Somebody jump off the page at us, Shro? I've got a nominee, Sammy Bunch from UNI. She was on base in every single appearance she had this weekend. Four for four, two home runs, two stolen bases, eight RBIs. And the team she faced just gave up at the end and decided to walk her three times. So literally, <laughs> she was perfect this weekend. I, I like it. I, I would second that nomination, Sammy Bunch. You took yep. it from me, Jen. That was exactly who I had. You can't be better than batting a 1,000. Let's go. Congratulations, UNI's Sammy Bunch, our seven innings player of the week. Another good episode in the books. Thanks so much for the uh, special visit from Jersey Meg. BMO, Scarborough, Schrode, Bro, JDH, and Smitty. This is a tough one because we want to expand our audience to the dog world. We could call it Bella the ball, but we also want to reach out to the football crowd. And so I think I'm leaning towards this week's episode is Justin Fields in Scarborough's living room. And there you have it, America. There oh, you that have it. Be. Hopefully that'll, that'll grab them by the eyeballs. Interesting when Donnie sees that one, he'll be like, what? <laughs> He's not actually there, is he? No. I I can confirm he's not. (laughs) 
Seven Innings Podcast, folks. We'll see you on the road to the Women's College World Series.